Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm going to start with a reading from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So my name is Bethany and I'm from Dubbo in New South Wales originally. Um, I don't know if has anyone ever been through Dubbo? Yes. Oh, wow. Great. Centre of the universe. Um, it's... <laughs> As you know, it's hot, it's dry, and it's got a zoo, and that's about it. Um, but I, I am an actor. I studied um, theatre and theatre making, and so there weren't many opportunities for me to work in Dubbo, so I moved to Melbourne. And um, I've had a really great run. It's actually 10 years this year since I moved to Melbourne, and I've written two shows. The first was about my grandmother and life in regional Australia. It was about um, local dances and sausage roll recipes, and it was a hit. Um, we went all around Australia performing at about 60 towns across Australia, which was fantastic. And then I wrote another show. I had pressure from everybody saying, what's next? So I wrote a show about my job as a receptionist at a music academy. It was called Reception the Musical, and it was a celebration of administration. And um, again, we got funding and went around Australia again. So I've been really lucky in that I've had a lot of opportunities as a performer. But as an independent, so you, you write, you perform, you produce, you facilitate workshops, you're a teaching artist, you also work part-time in an arts organisation. All these different things. Just too many things going on and I started to get really run down and I was trying to be everything that everybody else needed me to be. And um, through all of this I was eternally single and um, I was lamenting to a friend one day that, you know, I have these five-minute bursts of interest from a guy and then it ends. And she said to me, you know, you take quite a while to recover from these things. I don't think that you love yourself very much. And I thought, well, good. I don't want to be that person that loves themselves. And then I thought, hang on. There's that verse, love your neighbour as yourself. And for the first time ever, I heard the as yourself. And I thought, does that mean that I have to love myself in order to love others well? Oh my goodness, what a revelation. What an inconvenience. No time for that. So I kept working, working, working. And then I thought to myself, okay, I actually need to get out of this rhythm. I need, to, in order to do that, I need to take a break. So I planned to take a holiday and I got a UK working visa. So I planned to do a working holiday. Great way to relax and reflect. Um, and it's a two-year visa, but I decided to do it in six months because I'm really efficient. And um, right before I left, I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. I'm going to go over there, just land a job, learn the ropes and then have to come back again. So I decided to give up the idea of working and just go and travel for six months. Then, of course, my friends all were putting pressure and expectations on me, saying, wow, oh, I wish I was my own boss like you are and you can just take six months off and travel. Wow, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Oh, my goodness. And I thought, I, I haven't had any time to plan it. And so I started to have this answer to people. I'd say, I'm going on a radical sabbatical. <laughs> and people would go, 
Ah, and that sort of shut them up. So that was my answer. Radical sabbatical. Yep, radical sabbatical. So off I go. Well, I was about to go on this trip and I had a breakdown with my housemate before I left. And I said to her, I'm so sick of me and now I have to spend six months with me. And she said, okay, what is it you want to achieve on this trip? And I said, just little things, you know, like... Write a new show, fall in love, sort out my negative self-talk. And she said, Bethany, you don't do that here. Why do you think that's going to happen over there? And she said, why don't you just go and have a coffee in Europe? And I said, oh, that sounds much more manageable. So off I go on this trip. Now, let's see if this works. Um, So I flew to London because I had that UK visa. I booked a flight to London. I've been to London before. I have friends in London. It's great. So much theatre happening there. But I arrived in London. It was just amazing. I just felt like it was grey and ambitious and it was exactly what I didn't need. So I turned on my heel and I flew to Spain and Portugal for the first leg of the trip. So this is exactly what I needed. I, I was warmed up by the Mediterranean. I thawed out. The hospitality is amazing. Because I had no plans... People would say to me, oh, wow, what are you going to explore here in my local area? And I'd say, I don't know, you tell me. And they'd say, what, really? You have no plans? Why don't you go and stay with my cousin? I'd say, okay. And why don't you go and stay here with my friend? Okay. So all of a sudden, me, on an artist's wage, thinking that I only had enough money to last for six months, I've kept getting all these offers to stay with people. People were hosting me. And you know, it's something really special when you spend time in someone's home. You really get to know about the place because you're seeing it through the locals' eyes. So I spent time in Spain and in, and in Portugal, um, which was really beautiful. And in Sevilla, in Spain, it was 41 degrees and I ran out of perfume and I thought, well, that's just not on because it's a stink, it's stinky hot. So I, um, I went and bought a new bottle and it was called C by Giorgio Armani. I thought, C means yes. So I, I like picturing yes, 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 walk out the door and say yes. So it's like I was wearing yes and I was really open to opportunities. This is just how my brain works. So anyway, I felt really open and warm and happy. And of course, I looked at myself in the mirror one day and I thought, oh, It's not much negative self-talk happening at the moment. I'm really enjoying my own company. Oh, I think I might love myself a little bit. And as I started to feel like these old things of me, my identity in my work was sort of dropping off and all of a sudden I was just Bethany the Traveller and I got to work out who I was in God and just, um, yeah, without my work as my identity... um, I found that um, as I loved myself, of course, new opportunities would come up. And right when you don't need something, that's when... So, like, I didn't need anybody and I met someone, of course, um, because I didn't need it. I wasn't looking for it. It's like what they always say. Um, So, I had this little romance, which was wonderful, just to have someone to, uh, to hold my hand and wander the streets together and to talk. And it ended. And when it did end... I remember feeling really upset. I really could picture myself living in Spain with this beautiful Italian architect. Who couldn't, you know, imagine that? So I, I got, yeah, I was, you know, like high school, writing my, his last name with mine. It was ridiculous. But um, so I was really disappointed when it ended. And I remember saying to God, I can't understand. Why did you take away my architect, my beautiful Italian architect? And I was pulling all my washing out of my bag. And there was this book at the bottom of my bag. And I thought, oh, I forgot that that was in my bag. So the story of getting this little book is quite a story in itself. So I'll just skim over that. It was an amazing thing that this book turned up in my life. I'd never read it. I'd had it. It was called God Calling. It's next to my bed back in Melbourne. And um, just because it feels spiritual to have it there, even if you're not reading it. So I had it there. Um, And 
when I'd packed up my room to sublet my room going away for six months, I didn't want to pay rent, so someone was coming in to stay in my room. I moved all my personal belongings out of the way. And as I was going to the airport, I did a quick scan of the room and I had left this book on my side table. All my boxes were packed and so I thought, oh, so I threw it in my bag. So here I am pulling all my washing out of my bag and this book is there and it's a little devotional and I opened it up. Here I am saying to God, I don't understand why did you take away my architect? I opened the book at a random page and it said, I am the architect. I threw that book onto the bed. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Open it up again. It says, I am the architect and I am building a firm foundation of faith. And I thought, okay, God, you just speak to me and you guide me. You've already been doing it, but I just, I'm just going to cling to you. Because everyone was saying, wow, you know, it was a woman travelling alone. And I said, I'm travelling solo, but I'm never alone. And that's truly how I felt. So all of a sudden, I had this amazing journey with God. And um, I was sitting in a cafe in Rome one day, Uh, there we go, and um, feeling a little sorry for myself this particular day because I realised it was a week until Christmas and I hadn't made any plans and my mum had said, I'd really like you to be with people, you'll be a bit sad if you're by yourself for Christmas. And so all of a sudden I'm writing in my journal sort of going, oh God, I don't know what my plans are and it's going to be expensive to go anywhere. And anyway, this lady leant over and said to me, what are you writing? And I said, oh, just my journal. And she said, oh, you're traveling alone. And I said, yes, see. And she said, what do you do for Christmas? And I said, I don't know yet. And she said, but it's next week. And she said, you look, we're, I'm not a crazy lady, but we can, we can host you, my family. We're just simple people. We live in the countryside. We're winemakers. And I thought, Oh, yeah, that sounds great. So um, she gave me her email address and I decided, yep, uh, see. So I met her at the train station a few days later. She took me. We had Christmas. with. So I'm sitting there pinching myself. Christmas with an Italian family, a nonna in the corner going, you know, you want a much more pasta, you know, like it was just crazy. And Valentina, the lady that I'd met at the, at the cafe, was the only one in the family who spoke English. So she did all the translating. And um, the more she drank, the less she translated, but the more <laughs> I drank the more I understood so it kind of worked out really well Um, but that night I had this brainwave it must have been from God because I'd never been in Europe for long enough to have to worry about this but I thought to myself is there some limit to how long I can be in Europe so I typed into Google as an Australian how long can I stay in Europe and it said 90 days counted and I thought no counted again I was at 94 days and I thought right what happens if I overstay my visa? And um, it turns out that you can get a stamp saying not allowed back for five years, you can get kicked out, you can, all these different things. And then I was like, what happens if you're in Italy? And it said, Italians are a little bit more easygoing about it, especially if it's within one week. So the next morning I come out into the kitchen and Valentina says, oh, how'd you sleep? And I said, I have to leave the country. And so um, we did a bit of a plan. I thought, I I can't believe I have to leave Europe. I'm just having such a great time here. This is going to completely throw me out of my rhythm. And she said, don't, don't, you don't have to leave Europe, you just have to leave the Schengen zone. So we looked at the cheap flights and I ended up going to Bulgaria. Um, I wasn't prepared. It was minus 21 in Bulgaria. I didn't have snow boots, I didn't have a proper coat. So I arrived, actually as I was boarding the flight, the one person that I knew in my mind that was from Bulgaria was an old acting lecturer of mine. And so I wrote her a friendly, casual Facebook message saying thinking of going to Bulgaria soon, like as I'm boarding the plane. Any tips on what I might do when I'm there? When I landed, I had a message from her saying, yes, yes, my whole family is from Sofia. I have friends all over. And actually, I have a vacant apartment on the main boulevard for $5 a day. Do you need somewhere to stay? (laughs) 
yes, that'd be good. So all of a sudden I arrive and I've got this, it was very, very basic, no furniture, heating wasn't working properly, only one bar of the heater worked. So it was probably minus 21 outside and minus five in the apartment. It was so freezing. But one day, again, feeling sorry for myself, in Bulgaria, can't go back to the warm Mediterranean climate for, I think it was three months or something that I can't go back. And I opened my little book again. Here I am looking at my vacant little apartment and it said, use this time to furnish the quiet places of your soul. I thought, okay, God, I will use this time to rest, to write, to read. I, I had to hang out at cafes endlessly because the apartment was so cold. I would just go from cafe to cafe. So I, I'd got a little bulge area from Bulgaria because I ate so much pastry, but um, then I would go to the theatre every night for $5. If they do a different show every night. Yes, it was in Bulgarian, so I couldn't understand a word of it, but I loved it. And I would turn to people at interval every night and say, oh, hello, can we just talk about what the play's about? They'd look at me like I had two heads, that I was there watching this show in another language. But <clears throat> that was a really unexpected and lovely time. And again, God provided But I thought to myself, okay, I can't go back to these places in Europe that I love. Where else could I go? On my travels, I had met a man on a plane from India. And he and I had talked for nine hours. You know when you sit down on a plane and the person says, oh, so where are you going? You think, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. I do not want to talk for nine hours. And um, I was like, oh, you know. And we ended up having this amazing conversation. At the end, he said, you know, actually, you should come to India. You should come and visit my family. And I said, okay, maybe I'll write to him. So I wrote and said, hi, Bitblob. I'm thinking of coming to India soon. What do you think? And he said, actually, it's a very, very good time in February. You should come because there's a wedding. You want to wear sari? And I said, yes, I would love to wear a sari. So I fly. Ten days later, I'm in India. And before I left, my mum called me and said, look, Dad and I have had a little pray about it and we really don't think that you should go to India. And I said, right, I haven't received that message so I'm going to be going, Mum. And she just just was speaking in fear. I could just feel it. And I believe that perfect love casts out all fear. There is no need to fear. I am covered. I'm protected. I know I have to be wise. So I did do a little bit of research. Bitplop sent me a number of cities that I might want to go to. But each one that I wrote into Google, I'd write, Jai Salma, and it would say, woman attacked. Jaipur woman attacked. And I thought, this is not the real story. I just know that's not the real story. They're not going to put, Australian woman meets nice guy and has a time at a wedding. Like, they just don't write that. It's not sensational enough for the news. It's sensational for me, living it, but it's not sensational enough for the news. So, I decided not to do any research. I arrived in India. I went to a wedding and you see if you can spot me there, because actually, you're looking very, very beautiful in your Indian attire, they said, and uh, actually, you should, you're very, very old, you should get married. And I was like, really? I hadn't thought of that. That's really great. <laughs> so this is me over there in the green, just loving it. It was so colourful and uh, a beautiful ceremony of binding two families together, which I really loved. It was chaotic. We ate with our hands off banana leaves. It went for three days. I had four outfits. It was amazing. And Biplop's wife, she only had one son, and so she was very excited to have a doll to just dress up. I just loved trying on all her saris. We had silk everywhere. It was amazing. But they're, they're just so generous. Their, their motto is, the guest is a god. And so when I was at the wedding, I said to Bitplop, look, we'll make my plans, we'll go to the wedding and then make some plans about where to go. I had a month to spend in India. And I met all these friends at the wedding. All of his friends happened to be from all over. And all of them said, you should come and visit us. And I said, well, okay. So I um, all of a sudden had a whole month of accommodation, 
all of this local knowledge, friends to connect with. The only time that I spent by myself in India was in Varanasi, which some of you may have been there before, but it's on the Ganges River, the sacred Ganges River. And... Um, <clears throat> It's such an amazing place. Um, just the little streets, the smells, you could just not imagine. I mean, it's 1.3 billion people in India. Sometimes you feel like they're all on your train as well. It's just so busy. But um, I got to Varanasi and I stayed at this little Airbnb and um, it turns out they had this rooftop. And so I would go up there in the morning and you can sort of hear the noise from the city below and you can see monkeys climbing over the buildings, stealing washing, children flying kites, water buffalo out in the distance, the Ganges River right there, the 24-hour ceremonies of, um, of burning the bodies and releasing the ashes into the water. There's morning and evening at, at dawn and dusk they have a ceremony with bells and fire to, um, to worship the river. And the boats, there's no real speed boats, it's mainly these old wooden boats. So it's just this sound of the creaking like this along the river. It was such an amazing place and very humbling because the people there don't have very much that I was staying with. And yet they run, they have a spare room downstairs that they run um, a little school for... Um, for slum kids. And so without having to line it up, without having a volunteer visa, I'm staying in this house and got to work with children in this little sort of um, makeshift school. So um, as part of my time in India, I also visited a lot of temples. And a friend of mine, a Christian friend of mine back here said to me, oh, do you pray over yourself before you go into the temples? And I said, oh, no, I don't. Oh, I'm such a bad Christian. I, I felt really bad. And then I had this personal conviction and I just thought, wait a minute, I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb, I believe that, and I am a temple and I have God's protection and his presence with me at all times. Actually, it's a privilege to walk into someone else's space and to see how they worship. And so I felt that I learnt things from those people. I think it's important not to be afraid of difference. There is nothing to be afraid of. There's no need to be superstitious about these things. I think that if someone invites you in, it's, it's really nice to go in and learn and to ask questions. Because I hadn't done any research for any of the places that I went, I had no preconceived notions and was able to just, just hear from them and to see what sat right and what didn't and, and not to tell them that, just to listen is really important. So <clears throat> had this amazing time in all of these temples and, you know, the monkey temple in Varanasi with all the people almost on top of each other with these bells and I thought that's what making a joyful noise to the Lord looks like. It was amazing. Um, so anyway, from India, it really changed my view. It was getting towards the time that I could go back to Europe but I thought, no, I don't want to go to Europe now. I've seen this different culture. It's so different to the West and so I went to Southeast Asia, but it, I'm going to skim over that because it felt a little bit too close to home and very accessible in that you can go there quite cheaply and I'll have to do that for the rest of my life now that I've spent all my money on this trip. So I got out of the South, Southeast Asia and um, I decided to go to the Middle East. Um, again... Oh, no, sorry, the last thing... In India, I was on a train one day and a man said to me, you know, we have 130 million gods in Hinduism, 130 million gods because there's so many people, we need a lot to share. Different families have a different god that they worship. And, um, and he said, but above all that, we have one god. And I thought, oh, really? And he said, yes, love. And I thought, that's interesting because I know that god. So there were lots of things for me to think about. Anyway, I headed off to the Middle East. Oh, here's just a photo from Agra. This is 300 metres from the Taj Mahal. It's just so fascinating, the conditions 
in India, pretty fascinating. These are all restaurants along here as well. So um, anyway, I went to the Middle East. I flew into the UAE to Dubai and then I went to Oman and it was like 47 degrees and 75% humidity. So I couldn't do much. So I got out of there and flew to Jordan. And in Jordan, this is a photo from the amazing Petra. Has anyone been there before? to Petra, yeah. Really incredible um, to wander around this ancient city. They don't even know how it was created, carved, city carved into the rocks in the desert. Um, and this is biblical lands we're talking. Like in Jordan, I went to Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is where they say Jesus is baptised. That's just general, like you, that's the sort of thing that you say in a sentence when you live there. And then you go for a little drive to the Dead Sea and then you go for a swim in the Red Sea and then you see the mountain, like Mount Nebo, where Moses died and saw the promised land for the first time. And all of a sudden, the Bible, you get really excited to read the Bible because these places are real. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, I was in these biblical lands. This is the, the top above the monastery in Petra, looking out over the mountains, and Aaron died. Moses', Aaron, Moses brother Aaron died on that mountain on the left there. Um, yeah. So... Um, I also liked dressing up there as well. Um, this is wearing the hijab. At, um, it was Ramadan at the time that I was in the Middle East, which um, is a holy month for the Muslims. And a lot of you would know they don't eat or drink any water and it is so hot in that month. And out of respect, as a tourist, you're not meant to drink in front of them either. So there's a lot of time where you can't drink your water. Anyway, they have this, um, when the sun goes down and the call to prayer comes across the whole city, um, they all get together for iftar, which is the meal that breaks the fast. So they, there was a, I heard, I met a family that invited me to stay with them and they said, would you come and volunteer at an iftar for Syrian refugees? Because Syria is just above Jordan, a lot of them flee into the north. Um, this city is Urbed and it's 20 kilometres from Syria. And one night, a lot of them, they stay up all night, they have these parties. And one night, I remember hearing this like boom, boom, boom. And I thought, oh, it must be someone's having a party nearby. And I said to the man who I was staying with, oh, someone's having a party in a village nearby. And he said, oh, no, that's the bombing in Syria. I've never been that close to war before. And just to think that people just like us live in those conditions and they don't have a choice is quite overwhelming and um, we have to remember yeah, these people are human beings with hopes and dreams and families and they live in such fear so it was really special to meet these children and to dress up and they loved seeing they loved seeing that I was there first of all and second of all that I would dress like them and um, I received 13 marriage proposals that evening one gentleman was quite persistent and said how many camels you want how many camels and I said <laughs> 30. And he said, done. I said, no, 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 no. And I said to my friend, I did think about it, but I was like, how would I get those camels home? And she said, Bethany, you wouldn't have been coming home. I said, oh yeah, that's right. So anyway, I said no to all of those, um, even though I thought getting married was what I wanted. Isn't that funny? But um, then I decided to go from Jordan. I crossed the border into Israel. Again, made no, no preparations, hadn't been reading 50,000 books about it. But I, I went in, and that's notorious um, in Israel, the security. And um, as I arrived, um, I crossed not into Ben-Gurion at Tel Aviv, the big airport I came across on, on land from Jordan to Israel. And I came up to the gate prepared just to say, I'm just a tourist. And I thought, this is bad, though, because I don't know how long I'm staying because I'm travelling with no plans. They're going to ask me, when are you leaving? So this lady, I walk up to her and I said... Um, Oh, hello, yes, no, just a tourist, just want to see the, the, the Jesus spots. And she said, and how long will you stay? And I said, until it gets too hot. 
And then I thought, I hope she knows that I mean the weather, not the political climate here. And she said, it already is hot. And I said, um, okay, well, I know that you give a two-month visa, so if I really like it, I will explore and spend longer. And she said, I don't understand why you don't know when you're leaving. And I said, well, let me put it in context for you, Mary. Her name was Mary. And I said, I'm travelling for one year with no plans. Oh, by the way, at the six-month point, I decided that I was spreading my wings and if I came back, I would go like that. So I quit my job packed up my house here in, in Melbourne and just decided to keep travelling. So um, I was nearly at a year's point at this point. And I said to her, I'm travelling with no plans for a year. And she looked at me and she said, I've always wanted to do that. So how, like, how, how do you work out like accommodation? Because I've, I've told my husband we should just go somewhere and not have it all organised, but he's really organised. And I said, well, Mary, you can do it. Look, you know, we had this big old chat. The people behind me probably thought I was being grilled because I was there for ages telling, giving her all these travel tips. So it was Mary who let me into the Holy Land. And um, I spent time in Jerusalem, which is just an incredible city. I can't even explain how amazing that place is, but the conflict there is real. I spent a number of weeks exploring Israel, and then one day in a cafe, I was talking to a girl, and she said, oh, so where to next? And I said, I don't know, Turkey, Greece, Turkey, Greece. And I thought, what a joke, like what a crazy thing to say, like just to have that privilege to decide like that. And she said to me, oh, well, both would be great. I'm going to a refugee camp tomorrow in Bethlehem. And I said, I want to go there. So I caught the bus with her the next morning. Again, no plans. I cross, it's about 20 minutes from Jerusalem and you catch the bus to Bethlehem. And you have in your mind what Bethlehem is going to look like. But you have to cross checkpoints and get in there. And it's in Palestine or in the West Bank, as they call it. Um, I arrived at this refugee camp and stayed with a Muslim family there for two weeks. And it was so incredible. When I first arrived, I felt a little nervous because there is um, the presence of the soldiers around the camp. And they have been known, they're not meant to come into the camp, but they have been known to come in and just, they, yeah, they terrorise people a little bit there. And it was very interesting to see that. Um, and so I went for a walk around the camp very cautiously when I first arrived and walked in, I couldn't believe there was an art centre on the corner. I don't know what I'd pictured a refugee camp to look like, like tents flapping in the breeze, but this has been there for 70 years when people, when Israel, the State of Israel was established in 1948, everyone arrived and there was a big fight and a lot of people had to flee their homes. They locked their houses and all they have left is a key. They call it the key of return because they dream of being able to return to their villages. So these people are hugely oppressed. They don't have any rights. They don't have access to medical. They can't really go anywhere. They can't go to Jerusalem. And um, it's just down the road. It's sort of crazy to me how I was thinking about how I'd been saying, Turkey, Greece, Turkey, Greece, and then I'm here and I meet these people. It was hugely humbling. But when I saw this art centre, I walked in and um, they said, we're actually closed. But are you Australian? Oh, we've got an Australian director working with our kids at the moment. And I said, oh, really? What's his name? And they said, Ray Goodless. And I said, you're kidding me. That's my first year acting lecturer from university. So the next day I come in and I surprise Ray. He couldn't believe it. We ended up working together for the two weeks on this project of a Batum Theatre project with the young people talking about their experiences of living in the camp, um, which was amazing for me to hear their stories. Um, and the family that I stayed with were really inspiring because they truly do want peace and they welcome anyone to their home. They said, we know that we're different to other people in our community. A lot of people are very, understandably, very angry and want to do something about it. And the young people end up getting involved in these groups that 
that make attacks on Israel because they feel their home has been invaded. Like some people have been invaded 60 times, they've lost seven family members, people have bled to death next to them because they can't get medical treatment. And one of the girls that I was staying with is she got into a medical course and she said that she wants to start a clinic there. I thought that she might want to go off and see the world when she goes to study somewhere, but no, she wants to come back and help her community. It was just continually humbling. Um, <clears throat> so this is me with the kids there. I'm about to finish, Steve. Yeah. Um, and this is the wall. It says here, we can't live, so we are waiting for death. This is the wall that said literally, you can see the top of it over there, the wall that separates. And... I was talking to Louise this morning about um, how powerful it is to understand that this, the, what's happening in the Middle East, the conflict there is a bit of a, a lesson for all of us because when any sort of conflict happens, like a marriage breakdown or friendships or anything, what happens is we build a wall and we force people to take sides and I just don't believe that that's what I have to do. I, people would say to me, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Other travellers would say, like, do you side with Palestine or Israel? And I said, neither, I'm a bridge because I'm a storyteller and I'm a story gatherer and I can go because I'm, I'm not attached to the narrative. I'm so privileged because I can listen here and be understanding and then I can go here and listen here and I can report back. And that's what we need more of, these bridging people that see themselves as bridges. <clears throat> One man in the city of Hebron said to me, oh, this is me with the, the kids and Ray in the project, could not believe that. That made me feel that I was meant to be there. Um, in the city of Hebron, which is, this is on a rooftop, it's just wire everywhere, it's Jews living very close, or Israelis living very closely to Palestinians, and there's a lot of um, soldiers and things around the place, but there's one little patch of land that's no man's land, and an architect, a Palestinian architect, designed a friendship garden and I had a lemon drink under a tree with him and he said the most profound thing about the conflict in the Middle East. He said, God in his wisdom, has, he's a Muslim man, God in his wisdom has placed each of us, Jew, Muslim and Christian, into this tiny piece of land to teach us to be brothers and we're not doing a very good job I just thought that was really profound. So, um, look, there's many stories, many humbling and memorable moments and endless revelations from God. And I do know that travel is a huge privilege and not everyone can do that. But what I learned and what I can tell people is that in removing myself from the world that I knew, um, God revealed a new way to see him, myself and others. And he used the kindness of strangers to reveal a world that's very different to the one that we see on the news. He used people from all different backgrounds and religions to host me, to humble me and to teach me things. From the Hindus, I learnt ritual and generosity. From the Buddhists, I learnt simplicity from the Jews, I learnt tradition. From the Muslims, I learnt devotion and discipline. So yes, I took a risk. I stepped out. By the world's standards, I took a risk. 13 months on an artist's wage, 29 countries, a woman travelling alone with a 12-kilogram suitcase, not a backpack. Um, I was travelling solo, like I said, but I was never alone. God was on my side, providing wildly and guiding beautifully. Every time I stepped out, God had something lined up. That's the the little um, the key of return at the entrance to the refugee camp. Um, <clears throat> every time I stepped out, God had something lined up that exceeded my expectations. So I wonder what stepping out and taking a risk might look like for you. Um, for the first time in my life, I had no plans. I had no schedule. But God knew the plans that he had for me. Plans to give me a, a future and a hope. Plans to prosper me. To lay a firm foundation 
to continue shaping this run-down little cottage in order to make it an instrument for his good. And I pray that you would let him do the same. Thank you.